Hi everyone. Before we get started with this week's episode, I'm going to quickly hand over to Lorcan, who has recorded a quick message on behalf of the podcast. Hello everyone, it's Lorcan here. I'm not on today's podcast, but I am going to be saying something important on behalf of the Potshot crew. As you well know, this is a football podcast, and one with somewhat of a niche tactical interest at that. That doesn't mean that we, the members of the podcast, aren't humans, that we don't have a life outside of football, and that we don't concern ourselves with what's going on in the world. Again, as you'll probably know, there's a genocide going on in Palestine right now. We are a small podcast, but one nevertheless with a platform that we take seriously. We condemn the brutal genocide that is going on against the Palestinian people at the time of speaking. A genocide that appends 75 years of brutal occupation. An illegal occupation that was set in place by a British government that claims to represent so many people, myself included. And it is crucial to understand that so many nation states and major corporations are not idle in this, as they expect you to be, but complicit. Taking a position is not a matter of political partisanship. It is to support human life. Almost 10,000 Gazans have died. Villages, towns, houses, hospitals, places of worship, all indiscriminately decimated. Gaza needs help and the international scene is doing nothing of the sort to help it. This is the position that this podcast takes, in addition to calling for an immediate ceasefire. We end this message by imploring you to get out and protest. If you're in the UK, there should be at the very least one every weekend in a major city near you, if not more. If you're aware, as we're aware and proud of our international listenership, we implore you to look at what you can do. You have a right to protest, and there is no better time than now to exercise that. We appreciate your listening to this message, and we also link below what is a non-exhaustive reading list in the description of the podcast related to the historical struggle of the Palestinian people. Needless to say, there's a lot more material out there. Thanks again, and we hope you enjoy the podcast today. Free Palestine. Hello and welcome to Potshot. I'm Alex Towles and this week I'm joined by Seb and Manus as we sit down to assess, decompress and react to Arsenal's first loss of the Premier League season against Newcastle from this weekend. But before we get into any of that, it's currently a lovely Sunday in November. Uh, It's afternoon for myself and Seb. It's quite late in the evening for Manus. So, lads, what is your perfect Sunday? This pops up question was suggested by Carl Carpenter on Twitter. Seb, we'll start with you. Um, I'm not a big fan of Sundays. The fact that everything is closed and uh, you're basically sp- have no real option other than to stay in uh, means it's a pretty boring day. So I'd say... um. The maximal amount of football that is there to be watched and consumed uh, is is pretty ideal for me. <laughs> um, the The better the games are, the better the day is. Uh, today is not really the best day for that, apart from the Arsenal women who uh, p- picked up a great result. But other than that, yeah, a lot of football, 
some nice food, good company, just a Saturday, Sunday in it. Sounds lovely. Well, as, as we're recording, Nottingham Forest are doing their utmost to preserve our top four spots, so thanks to them. Uh, Manus, what's your perfect Sunday? I usually, I usually go out, but I'd say my perfect Sunday is football, uh, game of game of five aside, and read my books. Fair enough. I think I'm a lot lazier than you two because my perfect Sunday requires doing a large amount of shit all. Yeah, um, I agree. If there's football on telly, absolutely amazing. But I'm going to be, if I'm being perfectly honest, I don't want to be paying attention to it. I want to have it on in the background while I was sitting and playing probably Football Manager. Uh, maybe FIFA. I've been getting back into FIFA recently. Not the new one, not EF, EAFC. I've been digging into old FIFAs because I've not got a new Xbox and reminiscing about times gone by. Uh, if you've got a potshot question you want to hear on the pod or any other question for us for that matter make sure you send it to us on twitter at potshotpod or email us at potshotpod at gmail.com and then we will maybe ask it i don't know maybe it's shit and we won't but we'll see so on saturday arsenal suffered their first loss of the season away to newcastle it was a game of few chances, marred by flared tempers and controversial refereeing decisions, but one that Arsenal dominated for the most part. The Gunners had more of the ball and more shots in the first half, racking up eight shots before Newcastle had their first in the 35th minute, but the Magpies got more into the game as the half went on. The second half played out much the same until Anthony Gordon bundled the ball into the net to open the scoring in the 64th minute. Newcastle then did what Newcastle do, restricting Arsenal to just two shots after the goal and seeing out the game. Hello, Towels coming at you from the edit bay to let you know that we are about to spend quite a long time talking about referees and refereeing decisions. We don't normally do this on the pod, so if you're not interested in hearing that and would rather skip straight to the tactics, skip to the 20 minute mark and that should get you there. So before we get into the tactical analysis of this game, there is some important context that we need to cover. We don't normally talk about the refs on this pod. Uh, It's something we like to avoid as much as possible. Uh, But given the atmosphere of the St. James's Park crowd and the refereeing decisions that were made and how important they are, as context for this Arsenal performance, we do have to at least touch on it. And the club knows that as well. uh, Mikel Arteta was pretty incensed by the refereeing decisions, uh, as seen in his media showing last night after the game. And this afternoon, as we're recording, uh, the club put out a statement supporting Mikel Arteta. It reads... Arsenal Football Club wholeheartedly supports Mikel Arteta's post-match comments after yet more unacceptable refereeing and VAR errors on Saturday evening. We'd also like to acknowledge the huge effort and performance from our players and travelling supporters at St. James's Park. The Premier League is the best league in the world, with the best players, coaches and supporters, all of whom deserve better. 
PGMOL urgently needs to address the standard of officiating and focus on action which moves us all on from retrospective analysis, attempted explanations and apologies. We support the ongoing efforts of Chief Refereeing Officer Howard Webb and would welcome working together to achieve the world-class officiating standards our league demands. So, that's what the club has to say about the refereeing of this game. In a minute, I'm going to let Seb loose to talk about what he thinks about the refereeing in this game. Um, But just before I do, let's give the major incidents um, that were talking points. So, firstly, Kai Havertz could have been sent off. Uh, he made a lunging challenge on, I believe it was Dan Byrne in the first half. Um, to my viewing, it looked like he was like flying in to attempt to block the pass, but he, he caught Dan Byrne, like, just grazed him, but the speed at which he was going meant that it was definitely a reckless challenge. And if he had been going for going to actually tackle Dan Byrne as opposed to block him, he probably could have done some serious, serious da- damage and probably should have got a red card, but he didn't because he only just grazed him. Uh, And there were a lot of Newcastle players who were not very happy about that tackle and that decision to not send him off. And so we actually got a quite favourable trade-off from that where Kai Havertz picked up one yellow card and then three Newcastle players picked up yellows from uh, their reaction to that Bruno Gomeres is the player on the other side who arguably could have been sent off in the first half. Um, he seemed pretty intent on putting his elbow into Jorginho whenever he could. Uh, and it was a theme throughout the game that he was trying to impose himself physically on our number 20. Uh, one incident in particular involved him like really getting his arm... like properly whacking Jorginho on the back of the head with his arm and very arguably he should have been sent off but he avoided a caution even for that because it seems the refs missed it and then of course there was the goal there were four distinct things that could have caused that goal to be disallowed firstly the ball very very nearly went out of play before Joe Willock turned and played it over we're talking like millimetres if that's of the ball still being over the line. Secondly, Joel Linton had his hands all over Gabriel and very arguably should have been blown up for a foul as he got the ball across to Anthony Gordon. Thirdly, the ball hit Joel Linton's arm and could have been given for handball. And finally, Anthony Gordon was arguably offside, uh, but he was given as level with the pass played. So, with those many, many minutes of context as to why we're having to talk about this, Seb, you're quite angry, I hear. (laughs) I'm very angry, yeah. I want to preface this by saying we we had this discussion about if we would even include this, and your line has always been um, to focus on the things we can control and things that we can talk about in a technical context. And I largely agree with that point. I think that argument goes out of the window if a game, the entire context of a game changes based on external factors and as 
more specifically in this situation, refereeing decisions and refereeing decisions that as politely as you've put them and as diplomatically as you've put them were incompetent to say the very least. If we roll this through, the the Harvard's challenge has been blown out of proportion for me. It's an attempt to block the ball. It's at high speed, obviously. Um, But all he ends up doing is grazing uh, Joe Linton was Jordan? No, Burn. Um, with his st- with his uh, front leg a bit, and then getting him with his follow through leg. It's it's a challenge. It's it's a yellow for me at most. Um, the 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 ensuing incidents are completely blown off proportion. But if we speak about the things that have happened to us in this game, the fact that Bruno Gimaraj was allowed to finish this game is completely puts this game into disrepute. It completely changes the way the game plays out in every single context of the game because not only did he on multiple occasions use his hands in in situations where he's fighting for the ball in very very arguably illegal terms the the incident where he punches Jorginho with his forearm he slides into a challenge beforehand both studs up with a hefty amount of of velocity to that challenge and then gets up and immediately hits out, ball completely gone from the play, hits out at Jorginho to injure him, to hurt him. That is violent conduct, that's a red card every day of the week, and the fact that he's allowed to stay on is ridiculous and changes the entire complexity of the game. We've had this before. This isn't even the first time this has happened. Three games ago, against Manchester City, Mateo Kovacic was allowed to slide tackle with his studs, two players, in the matter of five minutes and stay on the pitch. Had we not won that game, the entire context of how we assess that game is different because of things that are completely out of our control. And that's the fundamental problem here. It's not just that we are getting these decisions against us. It's the matter of how those decisions are actually found. We had the Liverpool game against Tottenham, where Curtis Jones was sent off in the first half. Quite rightly, I might add, it's in the rule book that every challenge that comes with a certain amount of velocity with the studs up over the ankle is a red card. But Klopp protested so much that the PGMOL retrospectively said, okay, the next big game we have, we're going to try to keep the game at 11-11 for as long as possible, which then allowed Mateo Kovacic to do what he did twice in the first half and completely changed the trajectory of that game. The PGMOL then said, ooh, we had another bad bad call here, um, another another thing we need to correct. So they overcorrected again, so that Ashley Young in the first half against Liverpool got sent off for two very innocuous challenges because they overcorrected again. And it c- keeps going on like this. They overcorrect after the fact. And and through that, there is no clear line of how they how an official is supposed to lead a game. It's always given as... Event happens here, then we course correct, then another event happens, then we course correct. And it's, n- it's, it's, it's unfathomable. And that's before even talking about the goal. Because, that, because we're, we're going to talk about the game further, but we can talk about not creating enough, non, not being at our best offensively, which is true, which is entirely true. But you cannot tell me that before that 64th minute it was, the team that looked more likely to score was Arsenal. That's pretty much where we were. That 
situation that led to the goal was Newcastle's first non-negligible attack the entire second half, first half included, basically. And through them scoring a goal that is just entirely illegal, we can have discussions about the ball being out of play. That's a situation that can't be resolved with the camera angle we were shown, because with the angle we're shown, we can't tell whether it's in or out. We, we needed a straight angle. We never got it. Fine. Joel... Joel Linton pushes both of his arms in the neck of Gabrielle. You can see that both of his elbows are entirely tense. It, it's a shove when trying to block the shot, when trying to block that cross. It's unfathomable how this is going through. And through this going through, never mind the handball, never mind everything else that happens. I'm not actually quite sure how that was offside. Um, Not entirely sure on the rule there. Uh, so, um... I think the way it works is uh, because Raya was ahead of the play yeah. at this point, right? So it was Joel Linton and Gordon who are level, I say with air quotes, and then Gabriel slightly behind. Uh, and you need two defenders behind the ball in order to not be offside. So it would have been offside if it was not for the fact that uh, they had judged that Jordan was level with the play. So he, they said basically that the ball went perfectly horizontally across the pitch from Joel Linton to Gordon then in the goal and that's why it's not offside. Okay. Again, that that that's by the by. The fact that he had that Joel Linton handballed it is another thing that I just can't quite fathom because we have the rule that in the immediate proceedings of a goal you can't use your hands and every hand contact whether deliberate or not is supposed to be a caution to rule out a goal. Um but again, my, my biggest offense is he literally pushed him in the neck. And with that goal being allowed to stand, the comp entire complexity of the chain of the game is changed again. Again, pro Newcastle, they are completely content sitting in their low block and trying to soak up everything they can with the atmosphere completely on their side. And as within the context that we're in, in trying to challenge for a title or whatever we're trying to do, it's, again, up for interpretation there. To have yourself being, the, the margins being this fine and yourself having an entire result taken out of your hand is ridiculous at this level. It's even more ridiculous that the only thing the PGMOL seems to do is overcourse correct and then write an apology note as if that would make any difference. And the frequency with which it has happened in the re in the last two seasons to Arsenal with the Brentford goal where they forgot to draw the lines with the Manchester, uh, Manchester United goal that was disallowed because where we again got a PGM oil apology and with the Kovacic stuff against Manchester City. It's a frequency that is unacceptable and quite frankly, quite right that Mikel Arteta went as hard as he did after the game. We've, we've been under his stewardship for nearly four years now and I've never seen him this angry and he was totally fucking right to be this angry because again I, this is not my first language I, I apologize if I've gone off track here I've tried to articulate this as concisely as possible but you cannot as an institution over course correct and within that take an entire game out of disrepute that's all I have to say before my head blows off
Thank you, sir. And with that important context to the game that we have just played, I think we can get into the tactical analysis of the things that Arsenal did do to try and control this result and the things they perhaps could have done better to ensure that the result could have gone in their favour. Before we talk about any more bad stuff, let's acknowledge the good. This was a good performance from Arsenal. Uh, Manus, in the doc, you've called it a very professional display. Um, can you tell me exactly what you mean by that? What I mean is that I've seen us play games like this before, and I've seen us lose our heads. And the and the most recent example is the Anfield game where Shaka just gets the crowd going and we just capitulate. But this time, I think even when we were getting kicked and battered, and even like I'm so proud of the fact that uh, Jorginho for me had a great game. He gets a left hook in the back of the head, and then uh, second half. He By gets the way, that's not allowed in. That's not allowed in boxing. Yeah, that's allowed in MMA. But so maybe the rules have changed in football uh, since the last time I watched it. But yeah, uh, and then second half he gets a. Bruno, uh, he, Bruno again goes and like, like shoves him in the back. And both times, I think he doesn't react. Like nobody goes into Bruno's face. Nobody reacts. Nobody goes to the ref. And we just play the game. We just play our game and we are calm and we're in, in, in our head. We're focused. And we, we don't let the crowd get to us, basically. I've talked about this on Twitter. Like I rewatched the game this morning. And I, I usually rewatch, I mute the commentary because it, it sort of gets you biased. And it's a completely different game when it's muted. The crowd plays a huge role. I think they, they try to get into our heads, uh, try to get us to do uh, something wrong. But I think I've, I've, it's been a while. Like we've, I've seen us play a game this professionally. Uh, and I think it's, it's a clear sign that we've grown up. Yes, I think the game plan was executed very, very well. We came into this game looking to play it very similarly, I think, to how we played Man City in terms of we wanted to minimise their threat as much as absolutely possible, keep control of the play as much as possible, and then try and get a goal to win it and, like as tight a manner as possible. Like, keep it very low margins. Don't let them run us over. Obviously, we ended up falling on the wrong side of that because when you play, in my opinion, when you play a low margin game, you leave yourself open to bullshit happening and it's stopping you from winning. And unfortunately in this game, bullshit happened and it stopped us from winning. One of the main ways that we kept Newcastle at bay, kept them such few chances, is we were incredibly tight off the ball. Um, Seb, what do you make of our defensive performance in this game? Um, I was really happy with it. Um, we seem to do this in every big game now where we <clears throat> tend to be a lot more reserved and try to force errors in, in the opposition build-up and not go as hard as as we did last season in the press 
Um, against Newcastle specifically, I think that's the right way to go with their disposition. Once you get onto them, they are more than happy to go direct. And in Callum Wilson, they have an incredible outlet up there to, to make ball stick and, and go from there. Even Gabriel struggled against him this game, which tells you quite something about how good he is at that. Um, so with our shape being as it is, we really restricted Newcastle, especially uh, in the first half to next to nothing. While once we did regain the ball, we were very, very settled, very concise in our play, very focused on, on control and, and going from there. So I, it reminded me quite a lot of the, the Newcastle game we played last season, uh, where we did focus on control and being cute in possession. The Jorginho inclusion obviously helped that a lot. I think he had a great game there. Um, and the game plan specifically worked very well, I thought, throughout. I think defensively, I think one of the most accomplished games I've seen, uh, Saliba, I want to talk about him, like, I don't know how... He's like, a that's, joke. Uh, yeah, that's one of the best pieces of business I think we've done. And we'll talk about this maybe 10 years down the line. Like, he's incredible. Like, he's just... I think he plays with some sort of uh, mental focus that I've never, I haven't seen anybody do at 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 the age that he is. He's just like even if he's getting pushed, he doesn't rush his actions, and he's like he, he waits for the gap to appear to pass the ball through. And I I feel uh, even Gabriel was incredible in this game. I know, and I he struggled a little bit versus uh, Wilson, but overall, I think. Uh, he did well, except for uh, the sequence where their goal comes. He like kicks the air, uh, which then goes to Murphy, and then the goal comes from there. Uh, but even even Tommy Asu, I think he was incredible and probably the right pick for this game, um, yep. just to keep uh, Almiron in check, and just the way that he's also adapted his role. He's he's sort of the four inverting left back where he's he isn't there to progress he's just there to pin and the way that he rotated with rice going left eight and then dropping at times like it was i think uh it's being worked out in in training and in coaching um i think white i would say white maybe had a slightly subpar game as compared to the other three but i think i think he should have done much better on the goal uh, where even if you think the ball's out, you go and close Willock down. Like he lets him just, he just stands there and lets him come all the way from the byline to the edge of the box and then put a cross in. So I think just little things, but I think defensively we were very good. Rice was again incredible as he usually is defensively, just cleaning stuff up. Yeah, overall, I think we've we've grown to be a much, much better defensive unit this season. This is the first big game in quite a while that we've had to play without Martin Erdegaard in the side, and it had quite a big impact on what we were able to do. Uh, Manas, how, how do you think Erdegaard's absence and Havertz's inclusion on the right-hand side of midfield affected our ability to build up? Okay, so in terms of build-up, uh, deep build-up where we start from the goal kick in the first phase, I think... We were pretty okay where I think Newcastle didn't press us as in intensely as they were positioned to do. Like they they had three at the edge of the box and they were ready to press us. 
Uh, but we were, I think we were, we were able to play out from that reasonably well throughout the game, where they were happy to just abandon the press and come back uh, into a mid block. So uh, I feel even Habits wasn't much involved in 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 deep build up because we we were doing our usual four two, really really wide open up this you open up the space try to open up the space um, centrally. So here the, the context here is uh, that Newcastle had had a straight line of five people. So they were in a four five one, and they were happy to just let a, let us have the ball. And I think how Odegaard affects progression there in the middle of the pitch is like he knows when to show and when to you know laterally transition. And I think Havertz did that well enough. But in this game, I think we naturally biased towards the towards the left side. Uh, I think the ball just ended up a lot more towards the left going to Martinelli. Um, perhaps maybe because they were trying to restrict us centrally and they were just happy to let the ball go wide. And they don't want Saka to get the ball at all. So uh, so whenever the ball goes wide, there's a pod of five Newcastle players versus a pod of three players of how we usually do our build-up stuff. So that sort of negates negated all of our build-up down the sides whenever the ball did end up going there. I think we sort of missed maybe Odegaard, but not as much as we usually would have done. Uh, just the game just tended to go towards the left side, in, in my view. We've talked about our central progression a lot uh, in recent podcasts, but for me, this was... Possibly the first game where our inability to access Zone 14, as us nerds called it, that little area outside, the, the area where the D is of the 18-yard box, where which is often called like the most dangerous place like from a creative perspective on the pitch, our inability to access that really annoyed me personally watching this game, because... It was as if we were like weren't even trying to get the ball there. Like we just we'd pass it wide and then it would come central and then it would go wide again, like the classic horseshoe attack that isn't very good. Um and there wasn't much movement from our central players, be it Eddie up front or Kai and Rice, in and around that area to try and receive the ball in space there and then do something interesting with it. And I think I'd like to say that having Erdogan in this game would have changed that, but on the evidence that we've seen earlier in this season, perhaps it wouldn't have done. Uh, but yeah, that's just something that annoyed me personally about our in-possession play. The replacement for Erdogan, of course, was Kai Havertz, and many of the noises coming out of uh Arsenal fan circles after this game was that this is actually one of his better performances. Uh, can you expand on that? Yeah, um, I thought so as well. Um, he did seem really, really engaged in the game. And that's one of the first things you need from Havertz is for him to really be engaged in the game and want to participate uh, quite clearly. It helps that this was a really dual-heavy game and he seems to... to both a be very good at those and b uh enjoy those actually as well um 
epitomized by, by his challenge on burn which which sparked the crowd a full Jaka moment if you ever needed one uh and perhaps the biggest uh evidence that he is our Jaka replacement simply on shithousing alone um <laughs> but yeah um i do think his inclusion has part blame on us not being able to access zone 14 quite as much um as much as any of the other players in our front five actually if if we look at that constitution we have martinelli as a wide player um who who loses the the ability to really engage and get centrally when jesus isn't there to to have those rotations on that side um rice isn't someone who who necessarily wants to to get in those areas as well Eddie isn't someone who who drops or or creates from there. He he's very much a, a penalty box player who who wants to receive inside and not outside. Before you carry on, um, I do want to say this on Eddie specifically. Like he will yeah. drop deep when when the whole team is deeper up the pitch. Eddie's happy to drop deep in like earlier build up to receive and then play forward. But when we're in and around the box, which is what we're talking about, you're absolutely right. He's a penalty box striker. Carry on. Exactly. Um, and on the right side, Saka did have a few moments where he was, again, rotating with Havertz to get more inside. But he and White pretty much had an off day uh, in terms of in-possession as well. Um, and with Havertz, he's not someone who who wants to get into zone 14 and create from there. He's someone who offers you supporting runs and combination runs on the outside to, to get into those spaces for cutbacks, rather. Especially on the left side, we saw that quite a lot in the second half where he was constantly offering up the seam run between the central offender and the and the fullback to get into there to then get into situations where you can uh play a cutback inside um so, so that entire constitution meant that we didn't really have a profile that could connect in that central area um but but even then we did create a few really good opportunities when combining in those wide areas so um, and and Harvard specifically, I thought, did well in combining with uh, with his surrounding on the right side as well as on the left side. On the right, he does seem a lot more engaged because of the angles he, he has in those areas um, to be able to actually get on the ball more and, and do more things there. On the left side, he does very much default to, to off-ball work and off-ball runs more so because those angles just aren't available to him. Yeah, it's quite frustrating that Arteta clearly favours Havertz on the right, uh, Erdegaard on the right, and also Fabio Vieira, Fabio Vieira on the right. Um, yeah. We <laughs> do seem to be in dire need of a left-sided midfielder who can actually do thought. something creatively. Oh, Granite Jacker, we miss you so much. Uh, Manus, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I, I wanted to expand further on our attack a little bit especially in the second half where we sort of figured out how to get in behind them like I think Seb mentioned we got in behind them quite a lot on the left side in the second half and I'm just really pissed about this fact that there is a lack of application from our attacking players where if you box occupation was really bad in that second yeah, half yeah I mean once we got into those areas yeah. if you if you are able to get behind a defense which has basically two lines of five or one line of four and one line of five and they are doubling up on your winger two to one and they're also compressing the half spaces by putting five players in there against a pod of basically three people that you have if you are able to manufacture wall passes 
which which resulted in the third man run being accessible through the channels you have to have to have players in the box who will gamble near post or in at the penalty box this is this is the stuff that makes Haaland who he is basically and i think as much as i love eddie and i love the fact that he's he's an arsenal boy and he just works his socks off socks off every game i think he just lacks that instinct and we don't have in this game we didn't have a midfielder who would be arriving at the penalty spot and guess who does that for us it's odegaard and there were so many times where the cutback is on in the near post and there are times when trossard hangs the ball and i'm like screaming rice is standing right there and he could have just he could have scored a goal and he just didn't attack the ball um so i think application from our attacking players is lacking and it's also a big reason like i know the midfield is also a reason where jorginho and rice have started a few games now and they're essentially currently safe passers if you want to generalize them they're pretty safe passers they will play the ball back uh so that obviously plays into it but there is a lack of application from our attacking players i think saka had probably one of the lowest games i've seen him play uh he just couldn't take his man on and obviously he's also doubled up so it's harder to do and they also ran that thing where they immediately got in the back of him when he yeah when he received the ball as well yeah. and got away with it as well mm. yeah and i think as a larger context as a, as a general thing this season i think the teams have figured out that if you as long as you compress the center you will be able to stifle our attack and i think i think tals you'll you'll talk about this in the xg numbers um yeah it, it's starting to show up now it's starting to become a thing um yeah i think i just you know if your team manages what is it like 30 i think it's it's around 30 37 box entries in total in a game like this you have to make it count i think uh, a really nice example of what both of you were talking about unfortunately i can't remember when exactly it happened um but it just sticks in my mind is there was a really nice up back and through in the second half before the first goal where martinelli gets through and then there's basically no one available so he just dinks it up into pope's hands um he was like aiming i think to get it over to saka but what we really needed there was to have someone available at the penalty spot on the cutback um for him to play it to so yeah i, I think that's a really good example of how one we were able to generate opportunities by playing down the wing but also how we were lacking that final box threat which is frustrating because when you think about how we were talking about Havertz before the season we were talking about someone whose natural game was to come on to chances like that uh, so it's frustrating to be talking about how he's been struggling to do that as of late not not to defend him too much but i think specifically the things where menace and i are talking about in the second half when we were able to access those areas havertz played a large part in opening up those spaces to actually get into those situations and at times being the man himself who was able to receive and play cutbacks so he did manufacture those situations and through in a consequence of that wasn't really able to get on the end of them as well yeah which is physically impossible yeah 
Oh. Uh, we, we, obviously, when he's playing the pass, absolutely. But like, yeah. if the ball's coming over from Martinelli on the left hand side and he's on the right, uh, he should be there. Um, but yeah, it's one of those things uh, with Kai Havertz. He's got things that we can enjoy about his game and things that we can will be a little bit more frustrated about. Just to close this, I, I promise we won't talk about Harvard's further, but uh, an, another thing we, we failed to mention so far was his aerial dominance in the game and, and generally being a big weapon and getting over Newcastle and being able to play more directly. Um, he, he was excellent in the air, this game, and genuinely offers an, a level of aerial threat you don't see from many midfielders if if we want to class him as such um which is a weapon and especially in the roles we, we use him as uh definitely plays to our advantage yeah i think one of the reasons we were able to control the game so well in the first half was the number of like first and second balls we won uh yeah the ball would well, go yeah. to Havertz, he'd knock it down it would fall to one of our guy uh fall to an inkatia a rice a saka uh that's from our goal kicks or if they're playing from their goal kicks, for example, the ball would go up, it would be won by Gabriel, it would go to Tomiyasu and we'd recycle from there. I, I was really encouraged by how dominant we were on first and second balls and Havertz was a big part of that. On that note, I think this is a good time to go to a break. When we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about the this game specifically, and then we will take a step back and have a look at how our performances are looking in the league 11 games in. And we're back. What a lovely break. What a lovely jingle. Seb, would you say that jingle was sweet and also jazzy? I would say so, yeah. It's a very sweet and jazzy jingle. Excellent. Enjoy it expeditiously. (laughs) Oh dear. Um, So... One thing we talked about last episode as something we were really looking forward to this game and something we were hoping would be a big factor was our ability to hit Newcastle in transition. Obviously, setting away Martinelli and Saka in transition was a big way we were able to hurt Newcastle in our games against them last year. But in this game, it really wasn't much of a factor at all. Manus, why weren't we able to hit Newcastle in transition? Um, I think one reason is the fact that we did not press high in this game to create turnovers high up uh, or to generate artificial transitions for ourselves uh, to go and attack. And second is uh, because Newcastle themselves allowed us to have more of the ball this time and be in, in, settled, in a settled block. <clears throat> but we did sort of create two or three transition moments, which again, I feel like should have taken more advantage of. And Rice did his, uh, I think he made two dribbles, which were like vintage West Ham's um, throwbacks where he just carries us all the way to the penalty box. But I think, again, like the decision-making from him on those, like the final passes isn't good. But yeah, I think those are the two, the two main reasons when, why we didn't create as many transitions in this game. And Newcastle did, because they were happy to sit back much more than, than we were. Yeah, that's kind of 
one of the things we really sacrifice, isn't it? If we are going to have the ball a lot and camp on the opposition area a lot, we are not going to have the acres of open space to unleash our wingers into that we may have otherwise. Um, Seb, do you think this was the correct approach? How much of this do you think was our imposing ourselves on the game, controlling the game, and how much of it do you think was Newcastle sitting back and letting us have that? I think it was a consequence of a risk-averse approach on both sides. Um, Ourselves wanting to consolidate possession when we win it back and sort of not, not pull ourselves into a game of transition against Newcastle, which is the correct way to do it, actually. I I would never want to be in a in a transition based game against Newcastle myself, and Newcastle themselves uh, wanting to to consolidate themselves after losing the ball and not being as aggressive as they usually are at St James's Park. Um, I think it worked well for us. the The thing is, once you allow the opposition to to settle back into a consolidated shape after losing the ball, there's two ways of do of breaking that down, and that's breaking the breaking the shape through systematic approach which didn't really work especially considering as we've talked about uh the right hand side with white and rice not uh white and saka sorry not working as well as it did and the the left side not not being as as good as it is especially with in the absence of sinchenko as the primary vertical passer and a general lack of vertical passing in, in the base of the team and the other way to break it is one that that did give us some fruit, which is breaking the structure through an individual, and that's Declan Rice just carrying the ball through through the structure and breaking it that way, um, which was something we we did well and allowed him to do by playing Jorginho again, going to both consolidating possession deep as well as breaking the structure through individual quality in in Rice playing higher up. Um, so I think that worked well, and I think we would talk about a different game if if certain. Uh, uncontrollable things didn't go uh, wouldn't have gone against us but here we are i do think though so you mentioned there how zinchenko's absence harmed us on the ball but i think it is worth noting that tomiyasu did have a good game uh absolutely formed his role really really well yeah. manas alluded that, sorry just go just quickly that was not supposed to be a criticism of tomiyasu i Ten, play this game 10 times and I would pick Tomiyasu in this game 10 times. It was the correct decision beforehand. It was the correct decision afterwards. It's simply that us including Tomiyasu did mean, especially in the absence of Odegaard, having to to progress and, and find <clears throat> ways of breaking the structure in a different way than we would with Sinchenko in it. That, yeah. that, that was basically that, the, I, the, the I, I get there. that. I was just trying to segue into talking about Tomiyasu. It's fine. Um... <laughs> Tomiyasu was a monster in transition defence in this game. Uh, And as Manas alluded to in the first half of the pod, he was really effective in possession as well, moving up into the double pivot and allowing Rice to drop out. His role was more dynamic than Mm. just being the inverting defect. Like I said at the start of the pod, where... I think if if we go back and I haven't done this by the way, if we go back and see the number of passes he's made, uh, he's made like thirty four passes and about seventy percent completion. So I don't think that he's 
very involved in the build-up in this game. But he's sort of there to occupy or pin, as we call it on this he's point. A, he's a backfiller. Yeah. Generally. He he occupied the spaces others would leave behind in maintaining the structure. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's a it's something, it's a very n- different use of the left back that Arteta has done this season with Tomiya. So Because you don't see Zinchenko going, playing ahead of the ball. Because he usually is our main progressor in these type of situations. But I think the rotation of a left block in with Rice and Tomiyasu at times was very nice. And I think we create that's why we created a lot of our opportunities from the left side in this game. Yeah, I think tactically it's a good it's it's a very good role that he's gotten right now. And I feel again, like it all comes back to application, what sort of passes you decide to play. If you if you sit Tomiyasu with the midfield line like just have them be aware of him rather than him being behind the midfield line you can start to play more wall passes and get players closer to each other uh, but now we don't do that yet um, and, and it's, it is a bit risky because you can get transitioned into because essentially in those situations you only have a rest defense of four people and if you get lose the ball there you're you're getting fucked so I think I think his role is very interesting, and I'd like to see how it you know develops more. I would argue it's an extension on on a theme we've seen generally, which is build up being more dynamic and more suited to different players' strengths rather than just the system itself. Um, and with Rice playing in the left eight, he does naturally occupy certain spaces, whether he comes deep and and gets the ball there or moves higher up. And having Tomiyasu there, who a has the tactical awareness and b has the the technique of basically not having any angles he can't access uh as a backfiller of when when rice is deep him playing ahead and when rice moves ahead him playing deep and so on does allow us t- to maximize the players we have when playing there this reminds me of a conversation I was having on everybody's favorite site for complaining Twitter last night uh, I was chatting to uh Many friends of the pod, uh, Max, Jack, and uh, at the iconic fifteen, who remains anonymous, uh, <laughs> and therefore makes it harder to reference him. But hey, uh, well, reference them. I don't know, uh, but it is what it is. Um, and we were discussing why our attack was struggling in this game and in the wider context of the season, and. It was basically we were discussing like, is it intentional that we slowed our attack down this year? And what at the Oconic Fifteen was suggesting is that it's absolutely not intentional, and it's a factor of these new players coming into the system and the fact that we've changed our attacking approach to, as you say, Sav, be a little bit more player oriented in that the system will change depending on which players fill it, as opposed to just being the system one-size-fits-all. So I just wanted to touch on that and ask your guys' opinion on it. To what extent do you think our attacking struggles this season are down to a simple lack of chemistry and cohesion between our attackers that will come with time? Or do you think... 
it's part and parcel of a more defensive, more low-margin approach to games. Manas? That's, that's an interesting question. I haven't thought about this. I think it's a mixture of both because um, obviously it's it's definitely a factor of how you progress the ball. But it's also a factor of the fact that Saka is not having the season or, or he's not playing at the standards that we're used to from him. But he still has, what, 10 goals and assists. Um, Martinelli had, didn't start the season. And Enketia has played, what, nearly every Premier League game this, this season? Or I think league. Jesus started one before he got injured. Yeah, again. so Jesus has played, has started one. So I think there are mitigating factors and there are there's also the fact that our left side has been completely empty or ineffective uh before this game. Uh I think those all of that plays in uh to uh to the fact that our attack has looked much worse than our defense this year. And our defense is basically performing at peak levels uh that we're used to under Arteta. And our attack, as you very nicely drew the line for us uh, in your data viz, it's basically <laughs> the worst that worst XG numbers that we've had ever under our data. Yeah, I, I don't want to call it my data viz. Um, so I've taken a screenshot from a recent TIFO IRL video. Uh, so our friend John McKenzie recently made a video titled Are Arsenal Worse This Season? Which I will link in the description to this podcast. And in it, he pulls up a graph of a 10-game rolling average for Arsenal's non-penalty expected goals for and against uh, over time. And this stretches all the way back to the start of Arteta's tenure uh, in the 2020-21 season. And what this graph shows is it shows a comparison between our expected goals for and expected goals against. And you can see that our rolling average for expected goals for this season is lower than it was at any point last season and lower than it was for the vast majority of the second half of the second two-thirds even of the 21-22 season as well. So this is something that I wasn't really thinking about um, when I was talking about this on Twitter yesterday. This isn't just something where our attack is worse than it was last year. Our attack is worse than it was the year before as well. Like, we're not... It's not just, like, we ran amazingly hot for a season and it's come back down to earth with a bump. We're worse than we were for the last 18, 19 months, which is a long time. Uh, of course, the contrasting fact to that is that our expected goals against has also come down to the lowest... As good as it's ever been, as Manus said. Um, like, you can, it's comparable to that stretch just before the World Cup last season, where we basically conceded absolutely nothing. Uh, but our attack is a lot worse than it was then now. Um, so that that's the data context. Our, our defence is as good as it's ever been, but our attack is worse than it's been since 2021, basically. Um, Seb, do you have anything to add on that? 
Um, not necessarily. I agree with a lot of the things Manus has said in that this is a multi, uh, a multifaceted issue. And the summer recruitment, obviously, and we've talked about this as well, uh, did gear us towards being more focused on the out of possession side of the game and, and sort of getting the perfectionist edge there. Um, I think that is still comparable, not comparable. What's the word? Uh, it's, you can have that while also carrying a above mid table attack. And the reason it's not is multifaceted. We have the build up issues, um, that largely stem from having, not having players that are as good at progressing centrally as other teams do. We don't have a Rodri in there that, that, that is just naturally able to do those things. We have someone who, again, is more focused on the defensive side of the game and solidifies us that way. Um, we have the affordance of space issue that uh, teams have, in air quotes, caught on to us and afford us a lot less space than they did last season when the expectation generally of us was a lot lower than it was this season. Uh, and, and then generally just one, the, the occupation of who plays in the interior positions. I think you can have Harvards as one of the interiors, but you cannot have Harvards as one of the interiors playing as a sort of second striker. If you also have Martin Odegaard, who is playing as far ahead of the ball as he is, and also occupying those very high positions. If you are going to do that, you need someone who is more willing to drop and more willing to to engage in, in second phase play than Odegaard has been over large parts of the season, Bournemouth non-permitting. Um, and the, the other issues are just generally things that we've touched upon. One is Edin Ketia, as good as he has been at being a, a reliable goal scorer for us, his inclusion limits our, our rotation play and our fluidity in the final third from a, a position of dropping when we are in subtle possession in on the top of the pitch, pr- uh, linking play that way moving out to the left-hand side to, to to get Martinelli more inside. Those things are things we lose with Nketiah. It also doesn't help that he hasn't scored an away goal in ages um, and does seem a lot less engaged when playing away from home. Um, and another thing is just a qualitative issue with not having a player that can break a game open with, with individual quality as well. So there are a few issues here at hand that we need to solve and that have made Arsenal a tough watch at points. Um, but things that sort of did announce themselves when when the summer was, when it was still warm outside. It's a toughie. It's not fun. Um, <laughs> I think... It's not. Like, some, oh God, some games were just not fun at all. My personal opinion on it is that there is absolutely an extent to which it's external factors, um, whether that be a lack of chemistry between our new look front line, uh, whether it be the lack of major creators in that front line. Um, like, think last season, our first choice front five had three players who you could argue were like mainly creative forces in Erdogan, Xhaka, and then Jesus kind of does everything. Saka uh, as well. Still. Yeah. Like these guys are all very, very in- interconnective players. But then when you put Havertz in there, he's not got the same interconnectivity to him. Uh, Rice the same. Inketia the same. And when you 
you're going to lose a lot of that when you make those personnel changes. But I do also think there is an extent to which it it is inextricably linked to our improvements defensively, in my opinion. Um, it comes back to the famous Rafa Benitez quote about football tactics being a short blanket. You yeah. can either have a cold head, uh, or you can either cover your toes and have a cold head or cover your head and have cold toes. Um, when we're, we've only got limited time in which we can work on things. Obviously, I'm not a professional football coach. I don't know exactly what's going on, but it does feel like we put a lot of time and energy into building our out of possession play this year. Uh, and it does feel like our in possession players come, come at a cost of that. And obviously, Arteta wouldn't have intended for us to have a drop off in attacking numbers of this extent. Uh, but I do think. Had we made different choices earlier in the season, uh, Arsenal may have a better attack than we do right now. Though admittedly it would come at the cost of a worse defence. If that's a trade-off you're willing to make is up to personal sensibilities. For me, I think it would be... I, I certainly prefer it, at least just from a fan perspective, watching the games. But... Arteta, looking at each game from purely trying to win it, he may think these low-margin approaches, especially in these games like this one, is the best way to do it. And hey, if we'd won this game 1-0 instead of losing it 1-0, we'd all be praising such a professional, impeccable performance in the lights of such adversity like you did against City. So... I think it's also important to mention that this is just a trade-off situation here we're talking about, and I think what makes certainly me and I suppose some others as well feel quite bad about it is that we are living in a world where the title is feels unattainable because we are dealing with a team that has the best coach in the world, that has the best players in the world, and that has by far the most resources in the league, bar Newcastle, being funded by nation states. That's, that's a dissonance in itself that, that people have to deal with. Um, and on top of that, with it seeming so unattainable, it, it does come down to personal preference of what you want your team to be. I I can only speak for myself here. I don't expect my teams to, to win the title or something. I'm naturally inclined to, to like teams that sacrifice defensive solidity rather than sacrificing offensive dynamism to gain more defensive solidity, which is why I have a soft spot for coaches like Peter Bosch and, and Marcelo Bielsa. Um, so so I, I think that's where a lot of the, the discontent comes from, the fact that it does seem like winning the league is an impossible task, and if that's impossible, we might as well have fun with it, and at a lot of points we just aren't. Um, of course, other things play with it too. Uh, the fact that we employ someone who, who does offer moral questions is, is another thing, and the fact that our beloved goalkeeper has been taken away for someone the the crowd doesn't like that much as another. So, yeah. Manas, do you have anything to add? I think we've like summarized the situation pretty well, but I want to say that even though it's it hasn't quote unquote clicked for us, and like there's a lot of rotation and there's a lot of nuance, our underlings, our underlying numbers are good. And underlying numbers, offensive underlying game, numbers, offensive underlying numbers, are good. 
box entries, progressive passes, final turn, final third entries, field tilt. It's good. So, so got the numbers, the attack, then the underlying numbers, expected goals. You're going another layer down. Yes. The underlying numbers beneath the underlying yes. numbers. So the impossession attacking stuff that doesn't necessarily translate into direct. Yeah. So here, here's the here's the flaw with with analyzing games with just XG or non-penalty XG because those numbers get generated when there's a shot. So if there's no shot, the the number doesn't get added up. So you have to go a layer down and you have to see where we're engaging and like you have to see the underlying numbers and they're fine. And they're, they're, they're just as good as probably what they were last season. M- maybe not as good, but yeah, they're fine. So it's also a factor of... Um, application like we talked about so how much risk do you want to take you know so i think so i that's why i'm not worried and i think where our xg is right now it there is no way it goes down it it has to go up so if you if you have money invest talks in arsenal right now i are you not worried about our inability to turn good underlying underlying numbers into shots yeah so, Especially considering we've had this discussion last year with another North London team that needed to click but <laughs> picked up results. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, it is it is a worry because at some point you have to start taking risks and play play your game, right? So I think it'll yeah. come. I'm not worried about the attack at least right now. Fair enough. Um, my final question on this topic before we wrap up. Um, it's 11 games into the season now. Do we need to reassess our expectations from pre-season? Manus, your expectation pre-season was that we were going to win the title. How do you look at that now? Uh, given our context and our injuries, I still want to believe. I'll say, I think, I think we'll be in there. I think at least we'll push City all the way till the end. Seb? Um, well, my expectations weren't that high to begin with. I always try to get myself out of predicting as much as possible because I think the volatility of league play always plays a part in it. But um, I think I think we did say that a lot of adapting needs to be done in the first part of the season and we're seeing it it's probably a lot more arduous to watch than it we probably thought it would be um but i think i reassessed sort of the the john pot we did uh if we look at the tone of that that probably uh was was a part of this uh i reassessed quite early that this seems a bit like a transitional year of getting these players to to combine into to get into a collective um, that, that performs at a higher level to which we can win the league. Uh, so, so I wrote that off quite early in my head. Um, I do think we're the second or third best team, depending on how you view teams like Liverpool and Spurs. Um, but with a gargantuan in front of us that broke 115 PL charges to, to get to the point they're at, I'm not going to expect winning the league, and I think we are in in a position where we are more about transitioning into a new period than we are sustaining and trying to to go after the league as is. I, I think for me, 
if we continue in our current trajectory, we'll probably be a solid top four side. So yeah. probably third, say, with a gap between us and the top four race, so fifth, sixth, uh, but also a gap between us and the title race, first, second. And I think that's how it will probably... If, if I was to purely extrapolate on what I've seen so far this season, I reckon that's how it would play out. If, as Manus predicts, our attack fixes itself, we learn how to generate more shots from the uh, positions we're finding ourselves in, then we could go on a City-style run of inevitability down the stretch and win a lot of points and push ourselves in a title race. But from where we are at the moment, I'm not so sure. Manus, do you, do you have anything to fight back against us with? Um, I understand the fact that like um, now we're assessing our season with a different context and lens because it feels like a transition year, like Seb said. But I'm, I'm still confident. I think I think in terms of players, we've made good moves. Maybe like you can you can call out Havertz a little bit, but in terms of additions, I think we've done well, and we've we've got more depth. So we've fixed the situation, like we've fixed the gaps that needed fixed, and we've added good players on top. So I'm still there's a lot of season left to play. There is a lot of season left to play. Uh, I think with that, given how long we've been recording for, now is probably time to bring it to a close. Um, Seb, I'm going to give you 30 seconds to talk about David Raya, because I know you want to, and we don't have time. So you have 30 seconds starting now. It's debatable whether I want to talk about it, but <laughs> sure, let's talk about it a bit. Um, I, I've been very supportive of, of Raya coming in and especially considering we know where why he's in the team and that's to, to add to build up and, and do different things at the top of the pitch, stand higher, etc, etc. The fact that he had three moments that have directly led to goals or shots uh, of that magnitude that he did against Newcastle is a concern and once... If if that pattern holds and and he doesn't sort of stabilize himself, we do need to have a bit more of a conversation about it. Um, but I'm calling for support at this point still. Um, yeah, support this man and he'll he'll come good. I hope. Right, that'll do. Uh, I gave you an extra fifteen seconds because you spent your first ten seconds uh, clarifying your position. But fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> I suppose this is like the rest of, of of the pod. Like, there's concerns, obviously, but it'll come good. Just give it time. A bit of hopeless optimism is always warranted in these situations. The the, ho- the hopium reserves are <laughs> waning slightly, uh, and the copium <laughs> reserves are being freshly stocked. And that is the position in which we leave you for this week. Thank you to Seb and Manus for joining me. If you want to hear more of their opinions, you can do so on Twitter. The links to follow their Twitters are in the description, as is linked to a Google Doc of resources for wider reading around the conflict between Israel and Palestine and the Palestinian cause in particular, going back, of course, to what Lorcan said at the top of the pod. Also there is our Twitter at Pod. 
Make sure you send us a message if you have anything you would like us to discuss on the show, or you can send us an email at potshoppod at gmail.com if you want to get a little bit a little bit more professional, business-like with it. Uh, make sure you leave us a like and a review. Uh, it really does help us out, especially if you share us with your Arsenal-supporting friends. Hell, share us with the ones that don't support Arsenal. Maybe they can hate listen or something like that. The music was made by James Blake. You can find him on all good music platforms at JWBlake. We will be back next week to discuss, I don't know, hopefully more points than we got this week. Cheers.